won't be getting uh, forced. <laughs> um, one other item. Uh, welcome Julian and Mary uh, Lepatic in the back. Uh, Julian's actually going to be preaching for us next week um, in fulfillment of a assignment that he has to do for uh, Southern uh, Seminaries. He completes his MDiv, correct? Right. Um, Southern. And uh, excited to give him a slot here to teach us and uh, bring the word to us. So looking forward to that. Alrighty, well if you all would turn with me to John chapter 9. I forgot line out here. told you last week that we're going to try to get through it and in uh, two lessons and I'm going to keep my word. So we are, <laughs> Lord willing, going to finish John 9 this week. And um, last week we only tackled verses 1 through 7, which really just laid the foundation for the rest of the story. Told us about the, detail, the details of the miracle important points behind it. Um, this morning we get the story unfolding, um, the meaning of the sign, if you will. He performs the sign, now we're going to see the spiritual um, point behind the very sign that Jesus performed. So he gives sight to this man who is born blind. Remember, that's a significant detail. He's born blind. It's important because John will tell us that everyone spiritually has been born blind. And Jesus has come to give him sight. Jesus is the light of the world. So verse 5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And that's echoing back to chapter 8, verse 12, where Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And as the light of the world, he's come on a very specific mission. Go with me to verse 39 of chapter 9. We're going to come back here at the end. But this is the main point. Uh, this is what we will see in this whole story as we move through. Verse 39. As the light of the world, this is his mission. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world. That those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. So Jesus gives sight to this blind man in order to illustrate verse 39 for us. And we're going to see how he does, does that. He's come to give spiritual sight to those who are blind. That is, those who are aware that they are spiritually blind. And he's come to blind those who are not aware that they're spiritually blind. Who are self-confident. Who in themselves and so reject Christ. There's a double-pronged point to Christ's mission. And as we work through this story in this first section, it's going to go from verses 8 through 34. The man who is healed is going to progress into more and more clarity, into a deeper and deeper faith in Christ. His eyes are going to be opened more and more as the story goes on. And the Pharisees who oppose him they are going to press deeper and deeper into darkness and unbelief. So there's a progression into sight, and there's a progression into blindness in this story. So I've entitled the lesson, The Mission of the Light of the World. Sight to the blind and blindness to the seeing. And it begins, in this first large section, um, to tell us the progress from blindness to sight, from sight to blindness illustrated. In this section, we're going to get four rounds of questioning. And in each round, 
uh, the question about how the miracle took place is going to come. And each of these people are going to be placed in a position where they have to make a decision about Jesus. And each of them, people are going to fail for one reason or another to confess Christ. And then finally, this blind man is going to be the only exception. He's going to see things more clearly than anybody else. And it's going to be the model disciple for us all. So the first round of questioning takes place between this man and his neighbors. Let's read it, verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes open? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, Where is he? And he said, I do not know. So this man was apparently quite well known, had probably sat there and begged for many years, but here he is seeing, and uh, obviously it, it raises much speculation, much talk. Uh, it says the people were saying, that, that is, this was uh, what was generally being spoken, it was going around, it was the scuttlebutt of the town, they were all talking, and there was all kinds of conjectures, some were unsure, this man's identity, some were quite sure, some denied it, it's not really him, it just looks like him. But in verse 9, the man gives testimony that he is indeed the man. He says, I am the man. This is a very important point. It's important because here we have first-hand eyewitness testimony by the man that this indeed took place. And not only does he give testimony, but it is corroborated now by all the neighbors who recognize that he is. So the credibility of the miracle is established from the gate. But if he really is the man, then the next logical question is, how did this come about that, that you are seeing? And with this man, he, this question, he gives his first confession of the identity. Look what he says again in verse 10, verse 11. He answered, the man called Jesus. This is where he begins. He never seen Jesus before. He didn't know much about Jesus. He had probably heard about him, right? He says the man called Jesus. He had probably heard people discuss Jesus. But he probably didn't know much more. And so he begins with a simple fact. This is his first confession. His name is Jesus. The man called Jesus healed me. And it's going to progress from there. And then the crowd um, is obviously astonished. They want to find Jesus. They ask where he's at, and the man doesn't know. Jesus has retreated. So think back to chapter 5, where he healed the man who was lame for 38 years. Jesus does the exact same thing there, right? He heals him, and then Jesus immediately retreats into the background, right? Um, the man doesn't know where he is. Nobody knows where Jesus is. And there's a couple reasons for that. The first reason is Jesus is not interested in being bombarded by the crowd for signs. He's after a specific thing. He wants to illustrate the spiritual truths behind this. He wants the rest of this story to play out. He knows what's going to happen. 
then he's going to come find this man at the very end, just like he did the man in chapter 5, and apply the point of the sign to him. So the man doesn't know where Jesus is. Jesus has hidden himself. And it now brings us to the next round of questioning. The man is questioned by the, the Pharisees. Look at verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the man blind, the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. So after hearing about this amazing miracle, the crowd now takes him to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious elite. They were the experts in the law. So it seems probably what the crowd's motivation here is this amazing miracle has just taken place. They want to see how their religious leaders are evaluating it. How should we think about this Jesus in light of this sign which he has just done? So they're going to the leaders to learn from them. They're looking up to them as the experts, if you will. And John now gives us an important piece of background information we didn't know. What day was it? It was the Sabbath, it was the Sabbath that Jesus did this. It's not the first time. Remember again, chapter 5. It was the Sabbath. Chapter 5, 16 actually says that Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath. It means it was the regular pattern of his to do these signs on the Sabbath. It was in direct violation to Jewish tradition and the regulations established by the Jewish authorities. He was intentionally breaking their religious regulations and traditions. Now, why was he doing that? Well, there's a few important reasons. Do you remember? We've talked about two of them so far. Why was he doing that? Remember? Chapter 5, let's begin there. What was the reason he gave why he was doing it on the Sabbath. We don't have time to dive back into it. Briefly, can you remember how he defends himself? Chapter 5, verse 17, he basically tells them, I'm doing these things on the Sabbath because I work on the same terms as God the Father. God works consistently on the Sabbath, and he is not guilty of violating the law, so I do it to demonstrate my deity, my identity with him. The second reason he was doing them on the Sabbath is told us in chapter 7, verse 23. It's important to note that he didn't have to do these things on the Sabbath. There was no urgent need, right? This man has been lame for 38 years. This man was blind from birth. There's no reason he couldn't wait until Sunday. But he does it. He does it on purpose on the Sabbath. Well, why? Well, chapter 7 told us that it was on the Sabbath because the Sabbath was actually the most appropriate day to carry out these works. Because in Jesus' signs, and what Jesus has come to do was to fulfill the very thing that the Sabbath was looking forward to. 
which is what? The restoration of all things, the restoration of creation, the final rest of God. Jesus said it was the most appropriate day to do the signs. But there's a third reason, and that's what I think our passage is going to highlight. He does them on the Sabbath in order to violate the Jewish oral traditions. The Jews had the law of Moses, and they also had the oral tradition, which they claimed was just as inspired and just as authoritative as the scriptures. And it was the fence that was built around the law, so you wouldn't even get close to violating the law. Um, there was all these extra-biblical mandates that guided and regulated fulfilling the law. And the violation that takes place here in chapter 9, I think, is found in that phrase in verse 14. It says, on the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud. Let me give you a quick quote here from the Mishnah, which is the sort of codification of Jewish oral law. If you want some good bedtime material, uh, here it is. Um, I'm not going to read all of this. Principal acts of labor prohibited on the Sabbath are 40 less 1, sowing, plowing, reaping, binding in the sheaves, threshing, winnowing, fruit cleaning, grinding, sifting, I think probably the point where Jesus violates is this, kneading. Kneading dough or making mud, clay, with his saliva um, and pasting on this man's eyes. Jesus intentionally violates their laws and mandates of the Jewish leadership. Why? He does it, I think, in order to press on them the very issue at the heart of why they're rejecting Christ. He's come to make those seeing blind. He's doing this to press them on their fundamental reason for rejecting Christ. They have elevated their oral traditions above God's law. And Jesus is forcing them instead to reevaluate their understanding of the law and their very reason for rejecting Christ. The problem is that they do not truly desire God's desires. Look back at chapter 7, verse 17. Jesus said, If anyone's desire is to do God's desire, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. If your desire was really to know and do the heart of God's law as it was revealed in the Old Testament, then you would not be so quick to dismiss Christ. You would press into his words. You would reevaluate your understanding. Your desire is, I want to know the word. I want to submit to that. That's not the hard attitude of these Pharisees. They have their self-made standards, and they're forcing Christ to submit to those. And so that is why Jesus is doing another sign on the Sabbath. He's poking them in the eyes. He's forcing them to deal with their primary issue. He's challenging those who are seeing. I think this is probably one of the best definitions now of what does it mean to be the seeing, right? He's come to make the seeing blind. It is those who make themselves, their traditions, their opinions, their framework, the standard by which Christ must be judged. And people still do that all the time today, don't they? I've been working through a, a book called The History of Western Philosophy by John Frame. Fantastic book. Highly recommend it. But that is the definition of 
the history of philosophy, mankind setting up his own autonomous reason to which God must submit. And God, if you submit to what I deem correct, then I'll believe you. If you submit to my desires and my opinions, then I'll believe you. That's what Christ is challenging here. He could easily have waited to Sunday, but he wants to expose man and his proud arrogance to submit Christ to themselves. So chapter 8, verse 42, Jesus declared that he is from God. Here these Pharisees now reject that claim. They say he is not from, from God. Um, look at verse 16. This man's not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Now, I want to stop here and just note that these Pharisees are correct in noting that a miraculous sign by itself is not enough to prove that Jesus is or is not Messiah or is not anything. So can you think of any examples in the Bible where false prophets or people not from God perform any kind of spectacular sign? The Egyptians, right? Yeah, the magicians, absolutely. It's good. What else? Uh, Bar Jesus. Okay, yep, yep. An axe, right? Yep. Any others? Yeah. Does the Antichrist do some sort of miraculous acts? I think so, or at least the false prophets. So in Matthew oh. 24, um, Jesus talks about uh, in the end times, false prophets are going to come and do such signs so as to deceive even the elect, if possible, Jesus says. Deuteronomy 13, 13 also warned about false prophets who would do a sign or a wonder to lead people away from faithfulness to the Mosaic law. So the Pharisees are right to note that the mere performance of a sign isn't enough to qualify Jesus as being from God in itself. But they're wrong in their faulty interpretation of the Sabbath. So the criteria of a prophet, he must do a sign, but his words must be in perfect accord with the law of God. And that is where they go wrong. If these Pharisees had hearts of faith, the sign should have caused them to press into the words of Christ, to reevaluate their understanding of the law, to see if Jesus did not actually fulfill it. But there's another group here. Look at the rest of verse 16. It says, others, that's others of the Pharisees, they're split in two, said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? So they see the spectacular sign, and it causes them to take pause. Can one who is a Sabbath breaker do something this miraculous? This is not just any sign. This is an extraordinary sign. So they respond correctly as well to a point. But while they may seem a bit more noble, we do not hear from this group again for the rest of chapter 9. I think the reason is given to us in chapter 12. Go over there with me. Yes, this group is right to take pause and consider Jesus, but they don't progress like the blind man. The blind man notes the extraordinary nature of the sign, and he thinks biblically about it, leads him to faith in Christ, but these Pharisees fall short. 
Verse 42. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Second group of Pharisees reject Christ because they were more concerned with the threats of man than with embracing Christ. They don't continue to faith. And this element of the fear of man is going to come up again very soon. So the whole group of Pharisees reject Christ for two different reasons, but it's the same issue. But before we move on, this man gives another confession. Look what he says again, verse 17. They ask this man again. They're not looking to learn from him. They're, they're trying to get the spotlight off of themselves and find a way to accuse him, get the pressure off. What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. So this man is thinking more about the sign that's just happened. He's hearing the discussion of the Pharisees. And he takes another step. He concludes that Jesus must be a prophet. This is perhaps the highest category for Jesus that he had at this time. Jesus is indeed a prophet. He's much more. But this is what he assigns to Jesus. Given what he knows, he concludes he's not just the man Jesus. He's a prophet. Well, that brings us now to the, the next set of questions. The Pharisees are at a standstill. They've made up their minds about Jesus already. They're not going to reevaluate their interpretations of the law. So the best way forward is to find some way to dismiss this sign. And so that's what they do. They call in this man's parents, verse 18 to 23. It seems like they call them in in order to find some way to excuse this sign away. Perhaps the parents will admit that he was not born blind. So they call him in hear an explanation. Look at verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he see? In this question, the parents respond with failure to acknowledge Jesus. Look at verse 20. His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will answer for himself. So they acknowledge that he is their son. Pharisees can't deny that any longer. And they acknowledge that he was born blind. Can't deny that either. But they do not answer the second question. Now, did they know? It seems they did know. The next verses in John are going to tell us that they knew what happened to him. Whether the son told them or they heard it, we don't know how they did. But they knew it was Jesus. So here comes Jesus vindicating this family who has been called sinners, right, ever since the birth of their son, who sinned, this man or his parents. Here comes Jesus said, no one's sin is for the glory of God, heals him, and grace and mercy they refuse to acknowledge Christ. They don't confess Jesus. Instead, they throw the responsibility back on their son. They say he is of age. 
means he was at least 13 years old. Um, he's probably a good bit older than that. He's competent to answer. So even here we're seeing the confession of Christ. He's even separating families. Parents are willing to put their son out in order to maintain themselves. But why did they do this? Why did they fail to give testimony to Christ? The rest of the verses. They feared the Jews, just like the other group of Pharisees. Verse 22. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if any should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So they fear. It's understandable. I think you would fear. Being put out of the synagogue means you're excommunicated from all religious life in Israel. You have no access to the privileges of Judaism. You're an outcast. They're a poor family, probably. They probably depended on the synagogue for help and assistance. It was a fearful thing. It's understandable, but it's not commendable. This is probably also a threat for Jesus' disciples after the resurrection, and probably even for those people John is writing his letter to. Look over at chapter 16, verse 2. Jesus warns his disciples, saying, They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. So I think what is being modeled here by the parents and their failure to confess Christ, it's not that they lack sufficient reason to believe, but they reckon the threats of man to be greater more important than Christ. They chose a dead system of Judaism over the fulfillment that Christ was bringing. So the second example in this passage of reasons for unbelief rooted in the fear of man. So the parents would be among the seed. They see, they perceive, they hold on to their own selves. They don't know their desperate need and they press into unbelief just like the Pharisees. This is John's call, I think, for his readers to evaluate their own responses to Christ compared to those in the story. Are you like the parents in that you have every reason to believe, but for fear of man, you refuse to acknowledge Christ? Or are you like the blind man, as we're going to see, who's going to progress to greater and greater boldness and more clarity, the more of Christ than he knows? So that's the question John is pressing on us. And that brings us to the final round of questioning now, the man is again questioned by the Pharisees. So their attempts to dismiss the sign um, has failed, and now they must go to another line of attack, and that is condemning the character of Christ. Still not even considering the possibility that he might actually be Christ, they're not reevaluating their interpretations of the law. They're hardening their hearts to another degree now. And it's in this final round of questioning that we're going to see these three interchanges, and things are really going to escalate. As the Pharisees dig their heels more and more into unbelief, this man is going to be driven into more and more clarity and faith. So look at the first interchange here. 
Let's read it, verse 24. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They have no explanation for the sign. They don't know how it happened. Nevertheless, they demand that this man give glory to God by agreeing with them that Jesus is a sinner. And the obvious irony is that one gives glory to God by confessing Christ. That's what this man will do. For this man who experienced the sign denounced Jesus as a sinner, that would be enough um, to prove the illegitimacy of the miracle. Even the person he healed is now calling Jesus a sinner. This man doesn't give an answer. He, he leaves at this point those questions, those technical questions up to the religious authorities. He just knows he was blind and now he sees. But that leads now to the second interchange. Pharisees desire to find fault with the man's testimony. Verse 26. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? So it seems like what's going on here, they've come to a dead end in their attempts to dismiss the sign. And so they ask him for more details of the miracle, probably trying to find some inconsistency, some ways that his stories don't align, and now they can dismiss it that way. And the man is beginning to see through his cunning at this point. This is sort of the turning point now. He knows they are not asking this because they are genuinely interested in evaluating Christ correctly. They're genuinely interested in knowing Jesus and evaluating him according to the scriptures. He sees through their cunning. And so he answers them quite sarcastically. He says, you don't also want to become his disciples, do you? And expects a negative answer. Um, he's exposing their duplicity. He, he's mocking them, um, showing that they're not really after the facts. And that leads to the, the final interchange here, verses 28 through 30. They profess to follow Moses, The man counters with compelling rationale. Look at verse 28. And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he has come from. So they give two we knows. We know that God has spoken from, through Moses, and we do not know where he comes from. They're quite confident. Again, the irony, of course, is that were they really disciples of Moses, they would believe in Jesus, chapter 5. But this man is going to respond, and he starts now to put all the pieces together. He's going to demonstrate that he understands the law of God, the heart of God's law, better than these religious experts. And he concludes correctly about Jesus. And so he responds with the longest speech now in the entire chapter, verses 30 through 33. Let's read it. The man answered, why this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the foundation of the world has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. 
If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So this man declares um, some certain truths of the Old Testament. He says, we know. He brings them back to the common ground of the Old Testament and exposits it for them um, in the kind of clarity that they should be having. He begins saying that God does not listen to sinners. The point echoed in the Old Testament. Give you a couple verses. If I cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. If one turns his ear away from hearing the law, his prayer is an abomination. And not only does God not listen to sinners, he does listen to those who fear God and do his will. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are toward their cry. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears the cry of those who saves and saves them. So this man goes um, by establishing that this miracle is so astounding that the two don't go together. You don't know where he's from, and he opened my eyes. Those two don't go together. God has to be involved in some way in this. And if that's true... God doesn't listen to, to sinners, right? Jesus must have God on his side in some way for God to be involved in this. Um, look over at chapter 11 really quickly, verse 42. Jesus says the very same thing. He's about to heal Lazarus or raise him from the dead. Jesus prays, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. So this man is making, connecting the dots. Such a sign has to have God behind it in some way, and God does not listen to sinners. The unique thing about this man born blind, this man says, is that never from the beginning of the world has it ever been heard that a man was healed born blind. Um, the extraordinary thing is not just healing of a blind man. We have some record of that in the Old Testament. But the healing of a man born blind, that, he says, has never been recorded in Old Testament and extra-biblical literature. That's an astounding thing that we have to pay attention to. And that leads to his third confession to Christ. Luke verse 33, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. The uniqueness of the sign testifies that Jesus must not be a sinner, but one with whom God is pleased. And then when this is combined with the purity and the consistency of the words of Christ with the Old Testament law, then the fact cannot be denied unless there are other motives going on. There are. And that brings us to verse 34. The expulsion Verse 34, they answered him, you were born in utter sin. So there's that understanding of the Jews. He was born blind. He must be guilty of sin. And would you teach us? And they cast him out. As they cast him out of the synagogue from Jewish life. This man who's a sinner, accused of being born in sin, is now thinking and seeing more clearly than the Jews. And this man just absolutely nails the right conclusion of a sign. In the right way, you should think about Old Testament truth, um, concluding in Jesus' identity. 
But these Jews reject them. They are the seeing. They are not sinners as he is. They possess the right interpretation and they, they kick him out. So his poor, blind, simple beggars become a model of true faith for us and discipleship as he confesses Christ in the face of, of this opposition. And that all is an illustration. And now Jesus is going to give us the point. Let's look at it really quickly. The point and the sign and the purpose of Christ's coming is explained. Christ first gives sight to those who know their, their blindness. Jesus comes to this man now in order to bring his faith to full maturity. He seeks him out. We're going to find out in chapter 10. Jesus is the good shepherd. He knows his own. He's going to come after his own and his own know his voice. That's what we see here. He finds this man in order to bring his faith to maturity. And he asks him in verse 35, do you believe in the son of man? Son of Man is a title Jesus used repeatedly for himself in this gospel, almost always connected in some way with his cross work that he's come to do. Um, he doesn't fill any specifics here. This man still has a way to grow. Um, he doesn't know all about the cross of Christ. But the man probably understood Son of Man as a reference to Messiah. And so Jesus asks him, do you believe in Son of Man? Up to this point, he does not know that the person speaking with him is Jesus, his healer, and he does not know that Jesus is the Son of Man. But look how Jesus responds, how he responds, and Jesus responds to him. Verse 36, he said, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. This man shows he's eager to believe Messiah. Who is he? so that I might believe. He's ready to believe. He just doesn't know which one it is, who it is, and Jesus makes clear two things. Number one, the person speaking with him is his healer. It's Jesus. And number two, Jesus is the Son of Man. And that leads to this man's final confession. So Jesus is the man. He's a prophet. He's from God. He's not a sinner. And now he grows to this final confession in verse 38. He said, Lord, Kurie, much higher than sir, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. That is the model of true discipleship. He believes Christ as Messiah, not just prophet, not just without sin, not just from God, but as the Son of Man. Yeah, he still has a ways to grow, but his eyes are open. And the more Christ is going to reveal to him, the more he's going to believe. And the final act culminates in worship. Worship. Perhaps he's just paying homage to Jesus. Perhaps he doesn't quite know Jesus is fully God at this point. But nevertheless, this is the confession of all true disciples in the Gospel of John, right? Every true disciple must come to this point of worship of Christ as worship of God. So Thomas, what did Thomas say at the very end? Chapter 20, 28? My Lord and my God. Chapter 4, Jesus told the woman in Samaria that God is seeking worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. That is what is going on here. This man has come to the point of worship of Christ. Well, he's come to open the eyes of the blind, illustrating this man, but he's also come to blind those with self-confidence. 
this we, we conclude. Verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see. Those who see may become blind. Remember back to chapter 3, Jesus said, I've not come into the world to condemn the world. Is he contradicting himself here? Here he says, I've come for judgment. Is there a contradiction? I don't think so. Because even chapter 3 highlights that while his mission is to save the world, the very fact that light is coming into a dark world inevitably results in judgment. Go back to chapter 3 with me really quick. Given the very nature of the world is darkness and rebellion to its maker, the very thing that necessitates its need for Christ is also the reason they're hindered from coming to Christ. Look at verse 19. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people loved darkness. They loved their ignorance of God their rebellion against God, their alienation from God, more than the light. The very coming of Christ is for salvation of the world, but it also leads to a further judgment of the world. As the world is revealed for its true character, as the world retreats deeper into darkness, the more revelation it receives, and as their judgment is heightened for rejecting Christ. So committed is the world to its darkness that the more revelation it receives, even a sign like this one, it only pushes them further into darkness and unbelief and increases their guilt. Well, a, uh, a blind man, I mean a, blind, a Pharisee hears this. Go back to chapter 9. He's offended. Verse 40. They hear him, and they said to him, We're not also blind, are we? They mock at his assessment of them. Jesus responds, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. This Pharisee knows Jesus is talking about them. He says, We're not blind, are we? And Jesus says that if you were spiritually blind, and you know it. But I've just described, you wouldn't have guilt. You wouldn't have sin. That is, you wouldn't have the guilt of rejecting Messiah. You would know your need. You would not be so hardened in your interpretations of the law. You would come to me. But as long as you rest satisfied with your own interpretations of the law and reject Christ, having seen all these things, your guilt remains. In fact, it is heightened. And that way, he's come. To blind the eyes of the seen. So, yes, Christ has come for the salvation of the world, but he's also come to overturn the tables. <laughs> he's come in order to expose the pride and the arrogance in the hearts of men. It's 1 Corinthians 1 to show the foolishness of the, of the wise. So we're out of time. Let me give you 15 really quick. Three exhortations. Expect opposition especially from the scene of society. Don't be shaken by the rejection of Christ, by the Jewish authorities. How can Christ be real Messiah if all these Jews are rejecting him left and right? This is the answer. It was part of his mission. 
Number three, let these truths shape your anthropology. Man is not a neutral just waiting for enough evidences of Christ. He's not desperately wanting to be rid of his sin. No. He's clinging to it. And if any come to Christ, you know their blindness? It's because they've been born again. Three questions now. Are you progressing? Are you like this man? Are you progressing in your sight? You've seen him. You desire to grow in your knowledge of him? He's Messiah. You worship him. Are you growing? Number two, are you more fearful of the wisdom and threats of man than of confessing Christ? You'll probably be mocked. You'll probably be laughed at. You'll probably be treated as blind. The great irony of all is that believers are the most logical, most clear. Number three, are you a worshiper of Christ? Are you like this man, bowing in Christ in submission to him? Do you abide in his word? Do you keep his word? Is your whole life in submission to him as his disciple? That's what this story is meant to call you to. And if it is, the point is that you're not blind. He's opened your eyes. You see his glory. You, you love him. You know him. You trust him. So that is the story of the man born blind. That is the meaning of the sign that Jesus performed. Any questions, comments? Yes. Thank you.